Amen. Let's go ahead and have a seat. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Good morning. It is great to be out. Great to see everybody. We've been talking quite a bit uh, towards the latter part of this year about the goodness of God. We've looked at that from a bunch of different angles, just seeing who God is and, and where, God, where God is and how God works. And you really can't talk about the goodness of God without talking about the promises of God. So we're going to spend a little time this morning talking about promises. What is a promise? How would you define or explain a promise? Well, promise is a pledge. It's a vow to, to do something or maybe not to do something. And you're, you're guaranteeing on your word that my word is good. That what I say is true. Whatever I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do. Or whatever I say I'm going to do, that I'm going to do. Why do we need to do that? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we need to say something and then immediately back it up with a promise? Well, it's because there's a good chance that whatever we've said in the past, we didn't follow through with. In a perfect world, there would be no need to back up whatever you're saying with a, with a promise. It would just be assumed, right? Your word would be enough. If I've said it, then I'm going to follow through, whatever it might be. But we're not perfect, and we don't live in a perfect world, and we fall short with each other a lot. And this falling short with each other that we seem to do quite a bit has a way of creating doubt. Sometimes we doubt intentions. We doubt motives. Sometimes we doubt sincerity with each other. Sometimes we doubt honesty. Sometimes we even doubt love. And so we develop this, this trust but verify. If you're familiar with that phrase, right? I want to believe you, but I just want to be sure. Because there's a bit of doubt. And so we want that absolute proof. Have you ever done that with God? I bet you have. And that's why we, we preach so many messages about being faithful to God, about trusting God, about surrendering to God. Why do we do that? Because there's a lot of times when we just don't trust God. We want to, but we don't. We want to be faithful to God, but there's times that we're just not faithful to God. And we want to surrender things to God, but there's plenty of times when we just hold on and we don't let go. We lack surrender. And there are plenty of times when we even question, where is God coming from? I don't get the way God works. I don't get the way God thinks. I don't know why God is doing it this way. Why is he doing it that way? Why is he not giving me this? Why is he not taking away that? So we want to trust, but we want to verify. God, you gotta, you got to prove it to me that what you say is really true. Now, if we're honest, we all have a little bit of doubt when it comes to God, in lesser or greater degrees. Can he? Will he? Does he? Can he see me? Can he hear me? Will he help me? Will he save me? Does he really love me? Does he really care for me? And it's that, it's that little bit of doubt that just jabs you in the side. And it's one of the things that makes this Christianity so difficult. 
being a Christian is a tough life. And it's that little doubt that we have sometimes. Is God there? Does he, will he, can he, that, that makes us quite a challenge. But that's part of being human, right? We're not perfect. And we do question and we do doubt things a lot. But we're not the only ones that have gone through it. In fact, more than likely, all of your Bible heroes have been through that same level of questioning and doubting. Can God? Will God? Is God? Does God? All those kind of things. You look through the Bible, all of your heroes, Moses, right? Pick somebody else, please. I'm not the one. I mean, he doubted. God said, I want you to be the one. And Moses was like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> you got to find somebody else. He doubted and he questioned God's, God's wisdom in even choosing him. Abraham and Sarah. Right? So when they found out that in a very, you know, later part of your life, in your old age, you will have a child, Abraham doubted. What did Sarah do? She laughed. Could you imagine laughing at God? I mean, like right in God's face. So there was a huge degree of doubt. Gideon, the whole fleece thing, right? Okay, make it, make it dry now. Okay, now make it wet. I mean, you imagine you think, okay, now can you like turn it into plaid? Now can you not I mean, what? It's like he doubted. He wanted this evidential proof that whatever God was saying was actually going to come to be. Martha, Martha, great example. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus comes on the scene and he tells her this will not, this, this illness will not result in death, which it did, right? But then he's buried and then Jesus says, but I can resurrect him. And she's like, no, no, you don't understand. He's been in there four days now. You know, there's a bad smell if you open up that tomb. She doubted. Thomas. Thomas could not wrap his brain around the resurrection. So Jesus comes back and he says, look, put your finger right here. Okay, so here I am. A lot of doubts. We have doubts. And God knows it. And I think to some degree, God expects it. Now, I'm not saying God's crazy about it. He would probably wish you didn't have any doubts, but he knows that our doubting is part of our imperfection. And we have loads of imperfections. And just like any good father with their children, God says, okay, I get that you've got doubts and fears and and issues, and and I'm going to work with that. Right? It's not what a good dad does. I know you've got weaknesses. I'm going to take you. I'm going to meet you where you are. And I'm going to help you to get to the better place that I know you want to be. So that's what God does with our doubts. He works with our imperfections. And that is why God makes promises. It's not because God has lied. It's not because God hasn't come through on his word before. But God makes promises so that we can at least maybe have some reassurance Okay, I guess he's serious. I guess, I mean, if he's going to promise, you know, then it must be true. Look at me in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. 
He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us will be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this speaks to the certainty of God's promises. And there are two things that stand out. One, God's nature and God's purpose are unchanging. You know, we often demand and expect people to promise something to us because they're going to stop. Or you said you were going to get this together. Or you said you were going to come through. Or you said whatever. And so now all of our faith is shot. And we want to see proof. But God is, is constant. God has never faltered. And then it says, the second thing, it's impossible for God to lie. Have you ever been lied to? Have you ever told a lie? More than likely, the answer is yes to both of those things. We make promises. Sometimes we don't always come through. We expect promises to be kept, but sometimes they aren't, they aren't kept. But in God, there's all truth. If he says it, his word is gold. You can, you can depend on it. So the promises that God made to, to Abraham had several layers. There was going to be a son, and that son was going to be the heir of many, many descendants. But there was one purpose to the, to the layers of promises to Abraham. That one purpose is that there would be a promised land for those descendants. That there would be a place that those who believe and trust and follow God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength would have a place to rest. And God was serious about that. And if you look over in Joshua chapter 1, we'll get there in a moment. As you look through the history of Israel... You see that playing out as God kept his word. From Isaac, through the, the captivity in Egypt, through, through Moses leading them out, through all the years going through the desert, right to the point of the, on the brink of entering into the promised land, all the promises of God were good. There were none faltered on. And the people were feeling it. And they were beginning to, to, to feel better about where they are and who they were and their walk with God. And their doubts were slowly but surely fading away. And their faith and their trust in God was growing. And I want to pick up the story right at the brink of their going into the promised land. Because I think it was, it was such an important juncture for them, but I think it's an important juncture for us as well as we deal with our doubts. Because this was their time to really see it all come together, and maybe it's your time as well. So I want to look at three promises of God as seen through the eyes of Joshua. And the first one is the promise of devotion. Joshua 1, beginning with me in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, 
Moses' servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. And I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. And your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river of the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea and the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. And I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore, which is the same as promised, to their ancestors to give them. You know, this pledge of the promised land went right from Abraham to Moses, right into Joshua now. And in verse 3, it says, everywhere you set your foot, it doesn't matter where you go, once you cross that river, wherever you set your foot, that's going to be yours. Forget about the opposition. Forget about the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amorites and all the other ites. It doesn't matter. Wherever you set your foot, if that's the land you want and you're faithful to me, it's yours. Go get it. That's a big promise. And then he says, while you're in route, nobody will be able to stand up against you. I mean, you can just imagine how they felt. I mean, they're coming out of this horrific time in the desert where it was one disaster after another. How encouraging it must have been to be able to hear just go through that water, get on the other side, and whatever you want is yours. You're going to have it. You know, the best thing about this promised land, promise, is that it didn't end with Joshua. Because the entire story of Joshua and this, this, you know, going, you know, across the Jordan and then going into the promised land, that's really a type. It's an example. It's a, it's a vision for us. It was never meant to just be its own thing. It was really just a vision, just an example. Joshua is really the same name as Jesus in the original language. And this promised land was a lot more than just a physical bit of territory that they were going into. Joshua was the forerunner of Jesus and the living kingdom of God that we are a part of right now. Your life as a Christian and being in the kingdom of God and being in this church that's the promised land. And I say, really? This is it? This is it. Being in God's kingdom, knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you've been washed clean through your baptism and through your pledge that Jesus is Lord, and you're being part of the body, not only here, but the, but the body worldwide. You're in the kingdom of God. I know this isn't a perfect place. We're filled with imperfect people. But what we have here is so amazing and so special. And I think sometimes we get so accustomed to it that we're really good at picking out all the faults in it. I know I can be. I'm one of the biggest fault finders we have. 
I have a list of things. Even today, we got to work on this. we got to fix this. we got to work on this. But in spite of all the faults, what we have here is something amazing. I've always said this, and I believe it. The worst day in the kingdom of God is better than the best day in the world. In spite of the issues that we may have from time to time. Look around this world. Read some of the news feeds. Watch some of the cable news networks if you dare. This world is a scary place to be in. I can't imagine if all I had to look forward to was what's out there in the world. Could you imagine if your whole existence, your whole foundation of joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment and future was what was available in this world? How discouraging would that be? See, we have so much more. You know, the latter part of verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God says, you have a promise from me of devotion. I will be with your side wherever, whenever you go. No matter what comes your way, whatever form it comes in, God's promise is, I'll be there right by your side. Well, what does that mean? Think of it as a, as, a vow, as a wedding vow. You ever heard wedding vows? I've done a lot of wedding vows. I've done a lot of your wedding vows. I've done weddings for 31 years. Every wedding I've, always, I've ever been a part of always had vows. I insist on it. Because you're making a pledge. You're making a promise to God, but you're also making a promise to each other. And wedding vows all basically say the same thing. They're worded different. Couples sometimes get really creative in what they want in wedding vows. That's fine. As long as you say essentially the same thing. You're promising to love and honor and cherish and support and take care of each other. For as long as you live, there's a union, there's a bond there. You know, when we became Christians, we made a pledge. Remember that pledge? You're going to hear two of them today. You said, Jesus is Lord. So you were entering into a a serious, committed relationship at that point. Prior to that, you were dating. You're dating. You're trying to figure out, is this what I want? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this right for me? But then you made a decision. Yes, this is right for me. Jesus is Lord. Just like that ring on the finger, when I pronounce a couple, husband and wife, you get baptized in that water, that seals it. There is now a committed, permanent relationship. You know, it's great to know that as, as committed as we are to God, that God is even more committed to you and more devoted to you. We may falter a lot in our end of this commitment, right? So we want to be devoted to God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and hopefully we are, but, but we mess up all the time, but God never does. His level of devotion to you is impeccable. It's flawless. It's perfect. 
It never changes. That's a great, great thing. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I promise. The second thing, the promise of direction. You know, God promised Joshua and the people that with this new land and this new life, that he'd be devoted to them. But he didn't expect that they were necessarily going to know how to get there. Or what to do once they arrived. And so through Joshua, God gives them direction. And we pick up the story in chapter 3 now. As they're getting ready to cross. In verse 1, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set after Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. And after three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you're going to move out from your positions and follow it. And then you'll know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Don't go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priest, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. And so they took it up and they went on ahead of them. There are very, two very important keys here. The first is this. Recognize when you're in new territory. These guys didn't really know where they were going. They were going to cross that Jordan. And what was on the other side was going to be pretty amazing. But they didn't really know what to do once they got there. You know, being in the kingdom of God is very different than being in the world. And because of that, how we view things, how we react to things, is very different than people in the world. We have a biblical standard that we have to continuously learn how to apply to all the different new situations we find ourselves in. And you're always moving through life. You go through different life stages, different experiences, different issues, good times, bad times. You know, it's really easy to apply that biblical standard to the things you're familiar with. I've been there a million times. I know how to do this. And that might be true. But the real test is when you come up against something new. It could be a new life stage. You're going from a teen to being a canvas now. That's a new life stage. Canvas into singles. Maybe getting married. Maybe having kids. Maybe your kid's getting older. Maybe you have a new career. Maybe you have a new hurdle in your career. Maybe it's a new relationship. You know, I met this, this woman or I met this guy and you know, I think this, this might be it. It's new. Any new challenge. Anytime you find yourself in a life situation that is new, maybe a place you've never been before, you're going to be faced with choices and decisions to make. And it's not always easy. To make the right choice, you've got to do what they did. And the second key is follow God first. They were given very specific direction. See the ark? Follow that. 
make sure. In fact, there was a, there was a span of, of, you know, distance that had to separate. Why is that? So they wouldn't be tempted to go ahead. In fact, don't even touch it. Just stay clear. But it's got to be in front all the time. And I think sometimes we want to race ahead of God. New career, I know what to do. New relationship, I'm good. Parenting, got it down. Yeah, I know my kid's 14, but I'm still doing the same things I did when they were five. And it worked then, so it might work now. It doesn't work now. And if you've never been the parent of a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old or a 5-year-old, don't think you just know how to do it. Relationship. I've been a disciple for years, and now I'm ready for this serious, you know, steady dating, however you want to call it. I know that's a dated term. You phrase it the way you want. This, you know, committed relationship. If you've never been there, how do you think you're just going to know how to do it? Anytime you get into a situation where it's a new life experience, you need to say, God first. I might think I know what to do, but I'm going to put God first. That's crucial. God promises you the direction you need. Just grab hold of it. And then lastly, the promise of deliverance. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I'll begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that, that I'm with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to, to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The earth will go into Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord... The Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan. Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and will stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. In a town called Adam, in the vicinity of Zarathon. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completely crossed onto dry ground. This was the amazing thing that Joshua was talking about. And if they saw it, then there's no reason why we can't see it. Because we serve the same God who makes the same promises. Trust God enough to know that you can be delivered. Just as the Israelites were, we can be. 
And in the same way that, that God drove out all the opposition, God can drive out your fear and your timidity and your doubt and your anxiety and your rage and your insecurity and your pain and anything and everything else. There's a reason why the Jordan was a flood stage. Because that just broadened and exemplified how powerful God is. You might feel like, yeah, these things are a flood stage for me. Good. All the more evidence that God can work powerfully. Let God drive them out. Whatever's holding you back from a full life in Christ and a life in the kingdom that God calls you to. Because God delivers. In your lifetime, you're going to hear a lot of promises. And you're going to make a lot of promises. Some will be kept. Some will not. But I really want you to pay attention to the promises of God. Because those are the ones that you know for the rest of your life you can always count on.